Welcome to episode seven in our interview series with the world-renowned Jonathan Blustein visiting us today from lovely, is it Israel, my friend? Yes, it is. Awesome. Jonathan of Blue Jade Martial Arts. Jonathan, welcome. And uh, please, you had something on your mind, please share it with us. Oh, yeah, sure. I would love to kick it off with um, something that I gather all martial artists should be talking about. Uh, I would phrase it in the original Chinese. So in Chinese martial arts culture, we say, so you're probably familiar with this. I'm not, I'm not sure whether you two are familiar with this in Chinese. Mm-hmm. That is, uh, but, but you know what it means. Um, hard and soft coexist, right? Yes. Hard right. and soft coexist. And it's important to know that in English we say hard and soft, but gung and ro are actually not exactly hard and soft, but gung is firm and ro is pliable. Because it's mm. not like hard and stiff, soft as in flaccid, but rather something that is firm but not stiff, pliable but not flaccid. That's gung and rope. There are different words for uh, soft being flaccid and hard being stiff. Uh, by the way, as an anecdote, the the name of the Okinawan martial art Goju Yu. Go and Ju is Gang and Ro in Chinese. So these hmm. are the same characters. So why am I kicking this off with Gang Ro Xiangji? I think we have um, a, an imbalance in the world of martial arts and also in a parallel universe in which I exist, and that is the universe of traditional Chinese medicine. And that imbalance is that people do not take the time to offset what they do either in medicine or in martial arts with something to countermeasure their tendencies and inclinations that they develop with their main type of Gong Fu. So that is is to say, if we were to use another Chinese cultural term, uh, Wen Wu, Wen Wu is culture and uh, martiality. Okay. The, The culture, the martial. When would it, so we, and in English we say the pen and the sword, right? So that's the equivalent. And what I find is martial artists forget that if they would like to deepen their practice and their understanding of their styles, whichever style that might be, they do need to invest in some type of different cultured practice preferably a more yin-oriented practice to balance that which they do in the guan or in the dojo. And the same is true for the world of medicine in general and specifically of traditional Chinese medicine. I have found that traditional Chinese medicine colleges, and I wouldn't like to generalize it, certainly probably not all of them, but a lot of them, uh, have what we might term in uh, modern culture, toxic femininity. And I don't mean it in the sense of feminism versus chauvinism. That, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm speaking of an, an overt inclination towards the yin. It's all about love and softness and acceptance and just containing the pain of patience. But, you know, you can't manage being a fully-fledged 
practitioner of medicine with that attitude alone. Uh, I have an example just from recent times. I knew somebody who is depressed. And it, it, while it is true that with many people who are depressed, you have to be very soft and kind and sensitive. And all of that is very important. But oftentimes, people who are depressed are playing a sort of a subconscious type of war with you, where, when, with them attempting to basically pull you into the darkness in which they dwell, into this dark pit in which they are. And you should be attempting to pull them out of the darkness and into the light. And I mean this in the most literal sense possible, because a depressed person truly requires himself to or herself to be in the light in order to recover. They need sunlight. They need to be outside. They need to be moving. So you being the young element is hopefully a person who is not depressed themselves. You need to pull them out. And in order to do so, you can't be to you, you can't be in, period. You you can be in in your base interaction with them so they would feel very comfortable with you, and that is quite important. But at the end of the day, you have to bring in that young force to counter that yin, which is depression. All depression is an expression of yin. So going back with martial arts, I think that um we have the opposite problem in martial arts. People are too much in their martial practice and they forget to off-balance it with some type of other different culture practice. And it could be writing, could be music, could be painting. It could be a type of dancing, which is a far cry from the way they do their martial arts. Mm-hmm. It could be cooking, could be gardening. Really, literally anything you can develop a gong fu in and has depth. And it has a, a more yin side to it, not an inside, but a yin side that can <laughs> offset attempting to kill another person. So, um, yeah, so I wanted to kick off with that because this has been around me in recent times because I've been speaking with people in traditional Chinese medicine and they don't get it because mm-hmm. they don't have this idea. <laughs> Ironically enough, right? Because Chinese medicine is all about yin and yang. It's all about the taiji, the balance. Yeah. But they don't have that concept of, hey, we need a practice outside of medicine to off-balance that yin-containing attitude of healing people. But isn't healing perfect? Well, it is wonderful, but it's not exactly balanced. I mean, um, it drains you. Drains you to be so yin, to just be given and given, giving endlessly, unless you're cultivating a young force, say with martial arts. You could do it otherwise, right? You, you could run marathons or whatnot. You, you can go climb mountains, but you should do something to offset that at medical practice. Anyway, I've been babbling long enough. I'd love to hear your opinions about it. <laughs> we just had Scott Rodell, uh, Sifu Scott Rodell on who's pretty famous and renowned for his Chinese swordsmanship. And he mm-hmm. literally says the same thing. He literally gives the same advice to his students. He's like, listen, find something outside of martial arts that you love, whether it could be guitar playing. He's big into a uh, bonsai. And so, oh. yeah, he, he does the bonsai. And on top of that, he just started throwing pottery because he wanted some really nice handmade pots for the bonsai that he was doing. So he mm. found a second practice outside of his martial art to complement his martial art. Another thing too, we live here in uh, hippy dippy Boulder, Colorado, 
And uh, we have the Naropa Institute. I don't know if you're familiar with Naropa, Jonathan? No, no, I am not. Please tell me about it. So Naropa is the only accredited Buddhist college in the world. Meaning like, like, like if I was going to Regis, which is a Catholic college and I was studying, um, science, I could take those credits that I got at Naropa and they would count over at Regis. So that's what, that's what it means by accredited. But for years, I don't know if it's still going. It's a master's program, but we had an outdoor psychiatric, uh, program at, at Naropa. And basically, like you're saying, they would have all their normal Western psychiatric treatments, but it would be on horseback or it would be next to a stream or it would be taking a hike in our mountains, things like that. So they were literally, like you're saying, in the sunshine, outdoors in the elements. And they found that they had so much better results and permanent results with their patients when they Mm -hmm. did the treatment out in a natural environment instead of maybe in a hospital with the fluorescent lights or instead of maybe in somebody's, you know, personal office that, you know, has the books and the couch and things like that. That typical image of what we see when we think of psychology or psychiatric treatment. So yeah, that yeah. makes a ton of sense for me. And I've been telling people for years, I've been practicing this myself and wrote about it in my books that martial arts teachers should take their students to all different types of venues to practice. So we, we practice indoors and outdoors, on marble, on wood, on stone, on grass, on earth, on concrete. I think that this uh, wide exposure to different types of terrain is beneficial for both the for both the body and mind, and is very useful for martial artists to be able to use their art in real time in uh, under distress because. If you had never practiced while standing on a certain type of surface, say you've never practiced on a slippery surface. So that would be uh, a bad idea to test it the first time when somebody is running at you trying to bash your head into the wall. Mm. Very much so. Very much so. Owen, yeah, did you so- have anything you wanted to add, my friend? No, no, that all makes sense to me. For sure. And I've, I've heard sort of very, uh, very similar concepts from a number of different teachers that I've had as well. So you're just speaking the truth over there, Jonathan. Yeah. Speaking the truth over there. Um, well, I, I nowadays it now is simply difficult to convince people that they have to pursue more than one type of gong fu because mm-hmm. there's too busy, you know, being on Instagram and such that they have no time. People have no time. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. How, how, by the way, you've just moved back to Israel. What has it been a year now? A year and a half. How are things going? You're getting. Yeah. Thank you for asking. I mean, everybody has basically lost their minds over the, you know, what has been going on over the past few years. This has been a, a tremendous transition, not, not just for the whole of society, but also for the, the martial arts community. I mean, not most, all of the teachers I know have lost students, and the majority of them have lost most of their students. So, um, you know, people may have gone, may have gone down from, say, someone had 100 students, it's not uncommon, they've gone down to 
anywhere between 10 and 30 students. And these wow. are the lucky ones because many people have closed down their schools. And, you know, people have talked about the, the technical facets of it. You know, people having stayed at home under government regulations and such. But I think there is an underlying current that people do not discuss, which is that there has been a very strong psychological shift in society. And many people have been psychologically broken. Mm. And because it's not a typical type of depression, and it's it's literally, it's, it's a new thing, right? It's a post-COVID existential crisis. And yeah. we don't have a name for it, so we don't talk about it. But people still carry this. Global depression. A global, yeah, it's, yeah. Yeah. But it, it's beyond depression. It's beyond depression because people were suddenly pushed way, way beyond their comfort zone. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people reacted by saying, hey, hey, that's interesting. I'm in a different place now. Let's let's change the way I do things. Let's change career. Let's change my job. Let's change the way I interact with others. You know, some people took it a very positive way. And unfortunately, the greater bulk of the population took it in a negative way. Yeah. Some just were, were phased for a few weeks and that's it. Others are still carrying the burden of that period we've all been through. And I think it's uh, partially our duty as martial arts teacher teachers to, to guide them back into reason and sanity. And that is not simple. That is, and, and maybe you would like to share from your own experiences of how you dealt with students. I can tell you that uh, my experience had been that people felt that they were not themselves anymore. They had mm. to be reminded why, why are they doing martial arts? What is the value in it and how it can help them integrate themselves into their their core personality because they, it's it was almost like a, an out of body experience, but not in the typical positive spiritual sense that people talk about, but rather that people were pushed out of their body in the sense of they lost the feeling of who they were. And fortunately, if they were practicing martial arts for long enough, then the martial arts contained for them the essence part of the essence of who they were. So by helping them go back into the practice and, and re rekindle the love that they had for the practice, it really helped them reintegrate their true selves back again. So this has been my, my observation. And certainly I have lost most of my students as well due to all of these chains of events. Also mm. the fact that of course, I moved abroad for a period of study over two years, but Certainly, the the COVID had uh, a big role to play there. So, please, by all means, share your own experiences. You know, I and Owen, I actually took a, a cue from him. You know, Owen started doing some classes online and on Zoom. And it was enjoyable, but there's really only so much you could do. So, I had some of my old students, and I actually had some old friends, Jonathan, that I hadn't talked to in 20 years reach out to me. So, I felt pretty good. Mm -hmm. So there's about a group of five of us and we would get together every couple of weeks and we do a big zoom meeting. I set up my zoom account with the TV and then I had the camera and the speakers and stuff like that. And then, you know, you could see the little, 
little blocks like we are right now. And, uh, yeah, it was cool because I had a student that I'd had for just a year. I had a student that I'd had for four years. And then I had an old friend of mine that was actually one of my Mantis teachers. And, uh, we did, uh, Wing Chun in college together. And I hadn't trained or seen him in 20 years. And then I had a couple of other students. I've got a friend that, uh, he does Wing Chun and, uh, he's an R&B artist. He does rap. But he's been studying Wing Chun since he was like seven years old. And so we got together and it was really good to be with these people. I will say for myself that I, I think that if I didn't have a practice, that I would have lost myself in that because I had something to go to continually. And, you know, I, I love my Wing Chun. I love my Xing Yi. And I kind of have a different mindset on how I train each of those arts. So it was like I put on a different robe or outfit or mindset or idea every time I was working on my personal practice, whether it be the Wing Chun, whether it be the Xing Yi. And I think a lot of people didn't have something like that, that they were grounded in, like like a repetition or a practice. And I, I think that's one thing that not enough martial artists look at is their look. They You need to look at it as a practice, as a lifelong process of learning and growing. And I, I don't think I think that's something that we haven't been able to convey enough from the Chinese martial arts world, at least in my yeah, opinion. I, I think you're absolutely right. This is something that I've seen Karateka understand, even people who are not a sensei or not even black belts, they sort of get it. All oh, Karate is, is a way of life. Maybe they've seen it enough in the movies, so they sort of get it. With Chinese martial arts, like, Oh, like how, how long would it take me to get this and that degree as if, you know, they're attending a college or university <laughs> or that form. I want that sword form. I want that unarmed form. I want that two man form. Like, like we're at like a Chinese restaurant. It's like, I'll take one from column A, one from column B, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> it's wild. It's wild. How about yourself? Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, you know, that's, that's a, that's a good question. I think that. For me, uh, you know, COVID was a little challenging. I'm not a full-time teacher. So I, I have, I have a small group of people that, that have been with me for a long time. So the only alternative that we really had once the lockdown started for COVID was to go online. Um, and we did that, but like Randall was saying, and I'm sure you know as well, it has its limitations in terms of being able to really transmit good gong fu and information. So, um, it, it it worked out as well as it could have for a while. And then uh, I'm glad we're back in person. We've been back in person for a little over a year now. And that I think that, that more than anything really made the difference for me is being able to go back in person. And it really made me appreciate having the opportunity to teach in person and to learn in person. Um, but in my personal practice, uh, you know, I really use, I really use the lockdown time as, uh, an opportunity to, uh, really work on my practice. I really went back to the basics and I just, I really started working my ass off basically <laughs> for so I had a really solid practice for about two years there. Sorry about Ginger uh, chiming in. Ginger is our elderly cat. She's 17 years old and a bit senile. So I, 
I would ask for uh, the listeners' forgiveness for for Ginger. Um, since we talked, we, we just mentioned, you know, that in with karate, people have uh, a lot of a lot of films, movie films to to rely on to build their sense of culture around the different styles of karate and the the cultural vibe that comes from both Okinawa and Japan. And I think we we do not have enough films as such in the English language. We have very few of them in English. Uh, most of the Kung Fu flicks are from Hong Kong or China, and they only have English subtitles. But I, what I was looking at as, as Owen was speaking, I was trying to recall the name, and I found that film that I saw two years ago called The Paper Tigers. Have you seen it? Yes, I love the movie. Yeah, I love yeah. that one. Very fun. Yeah, so the Paper Tigers, I would highly recommend it. You could probably get it on Amazon, Netflix. It's a, a wonderful, wonderful kung fu flick full, full of um, traditional Chinese culture and ideas and idioms. And it really encapsulates a lot of how traditional martial Chinese martial arts were in the United States over the past few decades and how they are perceived nowadays. And I think the Paper Tigers, it, it, by the way, it came out in, two, in 2020. So it's a mm-hmm. rather recent film. Uh, is is a wonderful film to to show both um, students and and to share with our colleagues that can demonstrate and illustrate the type of culture that we as Chinese martial arts teachers are about. Very much so. Yeah, I liked it. It's on Netflix. It's a Netflix original. And uh, I liked that it was a fine mix between classical culture, but there was also a good amount of comedy in it as well. And mm-hmm. uh, it's very much a good movie about brotherhood as well. And I, I know that you kind of wanted to talk about that a little bit today, the camaraderie in that brotherhood that you can find in the Chinese martial arts. You know, that was something when Neil, Neil was our second guest on, on the show, and he mm-hmm. talked a lot about that towards the end. You know, he's like, listen, we're, we are practicing arts that are dying, not only in the West, but in their birthplace. And at some point, forget what style somebody else does. Try to talk to them. Try to learn from them. Even if you're not learning the physical skill of it, maybe you can learn how people teach, how people train, how people coach. Mm-hmm. Maybe you can get some ideas from each other. And that camaraderie seems to be, um, stymied or stifled a lot. You know, uh, some of the, uh, you know, one of my styles as one of your styles, one of your core styles is a Southern art. And, yes. uh, one of, one of my favorite things that you ever said, I think it was on, uh, your interview over at, um, the, uh, Plum Drag Herbs, uh, podcast that you said, um, you thought there was politics in Wing Chun. Until you had gotten into Southern Mantis. And I get it. I, 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 I get that. I get that. Um, I've, I, I've done, uh, I did Pac May for a couple of years. And I still practice the forms because they're fun. They're unique. I only have a few of them, but it was the same thing in Pac May. It's like only my teacher taught it right. And only this guy does it right. And we don't like the Choi Lee foot guys. And we don't like the Wing Chun guys. And we don't like these people. And I'm like, who do you get along with? Because you guys actually have, you guys have rivalries in your own damn school 
I'm like, this is not healthy. And I don't really think that this kind of idea existed in China even. I think it's something that's been overblown with movies, with storytelling after generation after generation of storytelling. You know, we call it the Uncle Bob's fishing story out of Wyoming. You know, the fish he caught was really this big. But by the by the time Uncle Bob is done telling that story, that fish is the largest recorded fish out of that reservoir and it's six feet long and it's a, and it's a, it's an 80 pound fish. You know, it just, it just, there's a ridiculousness that has been carried over that at this point in time where these arts are dying and where things like MMA, where other things like Sanda or Brazilian Jiu Jitsu or kickboxing have become so popular, we're going to have to start talking to each other and having conversations and be okay with not coming to the same conclusion, maybe, but still respecting each other because maybe that conclusion came from 25 years to 50 years of personal experience through your lens on how you've practiced this art. So I guess, I don't know if that made any sense or that was a little long winded interjection, Jonathan. Oh, sure. uh, well, uh, there are a lot of things that can be said here. I, so we are, we've been basically in, in the world of traditional Chinese martial arts. I think we've been riding the Bruce Lee wave of popularity and that wave has finally been dying down because yes. Bruce Lee was at it, at the top of its hype and the Bruce Lee phenomenon in the seventies and eighties. And then in, in certain countries like Israel, that was in the nineties because these movies arrived a little bit later into the culture. I mean, people don't know this, but until like the mid, I think early 1990s, Israel only had one TV channel. Hmm. It was that backwards in terms of, you know, its relationship with uh, modern media. Now, Israel hmm. has been an advanced country in other respects, but, you know, we, we had, it was founded as a semi-socialist country. And so the government was big, like in control of a lot of things and then was giving it up starting in the 80s and we're transitioning into capitalism and the, the mass media only became more capitalist oriented in the 90s. So a lot of the popular, popular films and TV shows, it only caught up in Israel in the 90s, which were previously popular in the States in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. So in Israel, the the Chinese martial arts teachers had their day in the 90s and early 2000s, actually. It's a bit mm. later. But the, the Bruce Lee thing has been dying out because the people who were young enough, when they were watching the Bruce Lee, Lee flicks, are now often too old, or at least too old in their view and understanding, to come to practice mm. and the younger generation grew up, you know, with fast and furious 7.6 and, and 8.9. And, and they're interested in different types of flicks and the action films of today are not the same as, you know, the Stallone and Schwarzenegger flicks of the seventies, eighties and nineties. And and people have a different mindset about, you know, what makes for action. And the BJJ, it's not just the Gracies, but there's a whole lot around the BJJ phenomenon 
that, you know, kept on happening behind the scenes, like BGG sort of infiltrated, not, I don't think consciously just happened culturally, infiltrated a lot of the behind the scenes, uh, Hollywood film, um, martial arts scene, uh, choreography. And then suddenly you have BGG. Like I was watching the, the newest Avatar film, not the Avatar, the last airbender, but the, the Avatar Blue Aliens films by yeah, yeah. James Cameron, right? So, and there's like, they do BJJ underwater. <laughs> right. And then, and that, that was kind of strange. There's aliens doing BJJ, but I was like, okay, but BJJ is everywhere nowadays. Um, and the Chinese martial arts people, you know, haven't really been pushing themselves into, or let's just say, I think there are a lot of Chinese martial arts people in Hollywood, but they've made their stuff just over the top ridiculous to make it fanciful and flashy for the audiences, whilst the BJJ and boxing choreography kept its roots. So the BJJ and the boxing and the Muay Thai actually looks mostly or exactly like what you'd find uh, in the in the gyms, whilst the Chinese martial arts looks like modern wushu. Right. People realize, oh, you know, I can't pull that crap off, you know, in real life. Even if they don't have martial arts experience, they they realize that's too much. That's, that's, that's an interesting observation. That's almost a, a reverse engineering of why, um, you should have some classical Chinese martial arts on big screen because it might, somebody might see something and be like, I think I could do that with some training. But yeah, you see the, the 360 tornado kicks into an instant sweep and other things like that. And then the striking of the poses, you know, I, I understand that it's, um, it's supposed to be for show, but yeah, I always joke and I always say, you know, Sammo Hung's my spirit animal, be, you know, my, my guy to be, <laughs> he's that chubby and he can do all those cartwheels. That being said, you know, Owen and I actually had an episode similar about this because we talked about the Shaw brothers generation and the golden harvest generation, the older Hong Kong films, most of those actors were actually legitimate martial artists. Mm-hmm. And now they're either dancers or they're stunt people that do a stunt version of martial arts for the cinema. And so I actually preferred the older Hong Kong stuff because you could see like a genuine, like thrown punch with genuine power, even though it was wushuized for the film, you could actually see some proper body mechanics. You could see real alignment. You could see real force, even though, you know, the punches were pulled, things like that. And now it's just gymnastics. There's nothing tangible. There's nothing real about what you're seeing on screen, except for entertainment, maybe. Exactly. That, that is what I wanted to get at. You, you got ahead of me. The martial arts choreographers in the, in the age of the Shaw brothers and the golden harvest, they had the understanding that they needed a certain tempo and they needed a certain speed in order to illustrate and, and demonstrate to the audience how the, those martial arts work. And although it was fast and it was flowing, it was still slow enough and sharp enough for the audience's eyes to be able to witness and comprehend 
roughly what was going on in a way that made them believe that this was possible. Mm. However, uh, you know, aside from that, we've had uh, a problematic phenomenon and this is quite controversial. I got a lot of flack for talking about this. Um, In China, the MMA is quite big right now. And the MMA is always involved with a lot of money. And there has been a sort of um, a business conspiracy, or I would say a business plan to get MMA into China. And there have been uh, various people involved with this. I wouldn't want to name any names. But in order to get MMA into China, they had to make the case that MMA was something that the Chinese people have to desire. And it wasn't that difficult because the Chinese people, the young generation of Chinese people are, were, are still affected by the, um, Chairman Deng Xiaoping, who said, I think it was in the early nineties or late eighties that he said that when the Chinese government decided that they want to transition more into, uh, capitalism, suddenly the, the chairman went on camera and said, Becoming rich is glorious. Now that was just, that blew the minds of the Chinese people. They're like, they've been told since 1949 when the communists took over, like money is evil, right? We kill people who hoard too much assets or money. And the Chinese were, you know, for thousands of years, they were quite business-like. So, you know, this communism didn't come naturally to them. And suddenly the German says, getting rich is glorious. Amazing. That's fantastic news. And everybody went for it, you know. And as a cultural byproduct to to this day, you see the younger generation, they are more and more attracted to whichever opportunities from Western culture might aid them in becoming uh, richer, more abundant. And they see the connection. They feel as if, you know, since capitalism, of course, the, the Chinese had capitalism. Right. They, they had like, they had an imperial system, but within it, they had capitalism. It wasn't exact. It wasn't exactly like the feudal system of the Middle Ages in Europe. It was rather different because the, the empire was so vast that they, they didn't really have the resources to oversee everything that was going on there. So instead of trying to do that, you know, a lot of people were just doing, you know, whatever they desired as long as they paid enough taxes and paid lip service to which, whichever thing the empire was into. Like when the Manchus took, took over, they decided that everybody are going to shave the front of their heads and wear long queues, whether old men have to do that. And it, it's punishable by death if you don't do that. And And so... You know, that's ridiculous. But if you did that, the empire wasn't at your heels. It's like, yeah, well, you wear clothes, you wear a hairstyle, you bow down to the uh, imperial officials, you pay your taxes. Yeah, do whatever. We can't mm-hmm. get to your budget any day anyway. You know, we come once a year, once every five years or so. You know, and, and people, most places, unless you you lived in a big city, you basically did what you wanted. And, and they had a sort of like free market capitalism. And so, uh, and now of course people were scared. People re- didn't really do whatever they wanted because if you were caught, you know, they had some really, really evil, harsh punishments. But nonetheless, you know, it was like a wink 
you know, get get along with what the empire says, <clears throat> and you could sort of do your thing. Uh, which, funny enough, is is similar to the model of the empire in Star Wars. Because if you read between the lines, you know, if you if you just do what we tell you, you know, you can do whatever. Have the money. <laughs> Have the money when maybe, we come into town. Yeah, and may, and maybe your plant is in the way, and we're going to blow that up. But aside from that. <laughs> so that's right. Anyway, going, going back to the Chinese and everything. Um, so when I was living in China, I lived on and off in China for six months of my life, and when I, and I was primarily in Tianjin, which is a big city with fifteen and a half million people. When I was there last in 2014, it's probably near, nearly twenty million people nowadays, and. I saw the youngsters eating at McDonald's and KFC, and, and I was thinking, like, what the hell are you doing? There are 10 restaurants on any given street, and this is amazing Chinese food. Why are you going to that McDonald's? Yep. Amazing, nutritious, delicious, traditional food. It's much better than the McDonald's and the KFC. But nonetheless, they went for it because it's Western. Mm. And I also remember one time, if you've ever had, you probably had uh, mooncakes, right? Yes. So, so not all listeners know what mooncakes are. There's something in between, like cookies and cakes. It's a bit difficult to describe, but think about little, little pudgy, uh, semi-hard cakes. They're really great, and there are many types of them. So, in the morning, I think it was probably like six a.m. I was driving on my bicycle to the park because it was an hour drive, and. I stopped at the bakery and filled the whole bag with mooncakes, freshly baked mooncakes, which are delicious and they smell great and they're probably not good for you, but nonetheless, they are delicious and smell great. So I took them to the park <laughs> and, you know, we, we're going to be like, I was driving an hour on the bicycle and then would be training for three hours and then driving an hour back. You had to eat something. So, yeah. and, 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 you know, I had Kung Fu brothers and my teacher, uh, Joe Shigong, my Shigong teacher's teacher, Master Joe, he was teaching at Seagull Park in Tianjin. So I brought the bag with the mooncakes. And after, I don't know, like an hour and a half, two hours of training, people resting, uh, I was offering the mooncakes to my Kung Fu brothers, Master Joe and everybody. And nobody took a mooncake. And I was surprised. Like, why wouldn't they eat the mooncakes? They're hungry, obviously. I've been training hard. And... Then, you know, um, I tried to give him those since I was left with a lot of mooncakes and I can't really eat all of them. Uh, so I tried to give them to some other Chinese people that I knew that were in the living quarters where I resided and other places. And I saw that the young youngsters that I knew, I didn't know too many older Chinese people, you know, um, no, none of the youngsters would take it. People like in their uh, 20s and 30s. So maybe two days later, I went on a um, friendly restaurant date with um, two female Chinese friends and, and asked them, uh, why is it that people don't like the mooncakes and they also go and eat at the KFC and the McDonald's? And they told me, yeah, well, you know, the younger generation, we, we want new things. We don't like the old things. I was like, what? What, what do you mean to say? Old thing tasty. Can't you get the equation? But no, it's uh it's a thing that came from it comes down way from way back from Mao Zedong, because Mao Zedong was basically against old culture. 
Mm-hmm. And that's that is a Marxist idea, actually. The, the so Marx, I have a, a sort of a love hate relationship with Karl Marx. I'm not a Marxist by any stretch of the imagination, and I think Marx has done a, a tremendous job at describing the negative facets of capitalism. He does a great job at that. Now, I don't agree with any of his conclusions about what should be done about it, but his right. analysis, right. His analysis right. is, is very good. But one of the things that Marx thought should be done, which I'm not in agreement with, he was saying, and by, and by the way, if, if you're listening to this, and especially if you're an American, go read what the man actually wrote and not what is being said on the news media. <laughs> not because you should be a communist. I don't think that no communism is a bad idea. Just he has some of the best critique of capitalism that there is, what should be fixed. And it's good. So anyway, he was saying, you know, that you should basically demolish old culture to bring in a new culture. Uh, of course, he didn't call it a Marxist culture. He called it a socialist culture. So um, Mao Zedong, who copied a little bit of what Marx was into and what, what Marx was writing, was telling his Chinese people, hey, we are not for old culture. We're going to reject old culture. I like what people say. They didn't actually persecute the Chinese martial arts too much. They persecuted the Chinese martial artists. So mm. a, lot of, a lot of teachers were politically affiliated and they're persecuted because of their political beliefs or affiliations because they stood for what was good and what was good was not the communism. And that was the problem. And, and so, you know, a lot of people nowadays, unfortunately from certain, um, Taiwanese lineages, they say, oh, you know, uh, all the masters died out in the mainland, or they killed all the masters, and that is other horse crap, and it's not true. But what happened was that a lot of them, they sort of went semi-underground. It's not that they hit the fact that they're martial artists, but they would practice and teach late at night, or they would practice in closed courtyards, and or they would practice outdoors in the parks, but they wouldn't show any martial things at mm-hmm. the park. They only they would only teach the movements, and they would only and and they would solely instruct on how to use them behind closed doors. That sort of thing. I think by the mid nineteen eighties, that was changing. By the mid nineteen eighties, they were already out and about. Certainly in Chen Village, um, right? Yep. And so, so what happened was that the, the Chen Village is good. I mentioned it. The Chinese government has been heavily invested in the new Shaolin, which we can call Shaolin Disneyland. Um, yep. Which they, they, poured a, <laughs> they poured millions in because yep. they realized this brings a lot of tourists. And then later in the uh, late 1980s, I think, and early 90s, they decided to also side with um, Chen Village because, mm-hmm. and, and they took a political side there because they decided, okay, so Chen Village is the one and only source of Taiji Chuan, which is not entirely correct because there's actually several villages with similar arts like Jiaobao Village in the region, and they all sort of co-created different versions of the same thing. And maybe the Chen village stuff was more widespread, 
but it's not exactly like these guys had the best thing or these guys had the only original thing. And also Chen, Chen, Chen Taiji, as shown in the research of uh, our colleague Yarek Simansky, Yarek Simansky, who has this wonderful mm-hmm. website China from inside, yep. uh, yes. shown and demonstrated what is known today that the Chen, Chen family martial arts are strongly influenced by Shaolin. And, you know, the Chen village is a, just a three-hour car drive from the uh, Northern Shaolin Temple. So that's not a long distance. Even by foot, that's not a long distance. Um, the Chen family, Taiji Chuen, was originally a Shaolin art that got rounder and rounder and a bit softer and softer and changed over, some say, you know, 13, 14, if, 13, 14 generations, some say 20, 21, 22 the generations. No matter how you count it, they changed it gradually from being Shaolin to what they have now, which is great. And the Chinese government became invested in that and in the modern Shaolin. The problem was then when the MMA people came in, they had to make an example that the Chinese martial arts were worthless so that the young people would go for the MMA, reject the old and bring forth the new, like Mao Zedong said. But they had to make the case for it because MMA was not that well known in China where they have the great firewall. So although people up until recent times, they sort of often bypassed the, the Great Firewall. It was not that difficult when I was in China, really not that difficult. You could have like a simple VPN and, you know, surf abroad to, to reach almost, almost any website. Nowadays, it's more difficult because they have this, this social credit system. If you do something the government doesn't like, they lower your ranking and suddenly you can't fly on planes, you can't take, can't take trains, they might fire you from your job. It's the, the worst tyranny on earth right now in China, unfortunately. And that's the government, not the people. So the MMA guys took this fella, uh, Su Xiaodong. Su Xiaodong, it's written X-U space X-I-A-O-D-O-N-G. Su Xiaodong. And um, that guy, you know, some people take him to be independent in that sense. I think he was also financed. That's disputed, but he's, um, at the time, I think he was around 40 years old. He's an MMA coach. He's skilled at what he does. Nobody disputes that. He knows how to fight. He's not a competitor. Uh, he started trash talking with all sorts of phonies online that claim that they're Taiji masters and all that nonsense. People who really belong in a mental asylum. People who are just crazy. And they're, they're basically all trolling each other. And he's like, ah, you know, I can do this and this to you without touching you. And he's like, hey, come and show me. You know, we're going to meet. We're going to have a fight, blah, blah, blah. And then they set it all up. And he he beat, he beat up two of these phonies. And then he beat up somebody who claimed he's from the Yip Man Lim lineage. Maybe he is. But his Wing Chun wasn't so good. And he couldn't stand to Su Xiaodong. And he also got beat up. So there are two two quote-unquote, fights against people who are basically insane. They're totally deluded. Who, who could not fight their way out of a paper bag, couldn't do anything. Mm-hmm. Then, then there was a Xu Xiaodong fight, which he won rather easily against this guy. Who think, I think it was a Wing Chun guy who just wasn't so skilled. And, and it's okay. I mean, um, but the, these fights were set up Xu Xiaodong, you know, he chose his opponents to be people he knew he could beat up easily. It wasn't evenly matched. 
it wasn't really well sanctioned. You know, the, at least the two, the first two fights were, were literally just random places and people picked up a camera and it was ridiculous. It was over in seconds. So later, uh, rumors have it that he was beat up. I don't know if that's true. I certainly saw a video where some people from Chen Village or on behalf of Chen Village came and challenged him in a hotel lobby. He was coming out of the hotel. <clears throat> Excuse me. And they were telling him, like, let's do it outside, here and here, there. And he's like, no, you know, this, let's, you know, we have to schedule, we have to prepare. He, he was finding excuses. He had an entourage. They had an entourage. It was heated up. I think the police stopped it outside. So I think that did not end up with an actual fight. But there are a lot of people who sought to defend the honor of traditional Chinese martial arts who wanted to fight Xu Xiaodong. He never agreed to have any of these fights. So, excuse me. <clears throat> I'm not saying that he had to. I'm just saying the fights that he did have were not difficult for him at all. And that was it. And then um, there there had been a few other people, um, maybe similar in agenda to Xu Xiaodong. Maybe they did not have an agenda. I don't know. There are at least three or four or five other fights like that that became widespreadly popularized in China until the government basically came down on this because the government is invested in Chen Village and mm-hmm. the government couldn't approve, you know, of Taiji Chen being humiliated in that way. They didn't like it. So the government basically said, you know, anybody who's going to do something like this that's not sanctioned, that doesn't have a government authorization is going to get in deep trouble. And Su Xiaodong was also arrested for a while and his, I think his gym was closed for a, for a short while. Yep. So he got the clue. He stopped that. But the message already came across, you know, People realize, hey, you know, this MMA thing has got something that's supposedly better than our traditional Chinese martial arts. And that is how MMA and BJJ caught on so well in China now. Now, also, people must understand, you know, I'm trying to be neutral here with Su Xiaodong, right? Because I'm saying the person has skill. He's a legit MMA coach. I don't like him personally, his personality, what he did. But that's aside the point, you know. And Su Xiaodong was also reacting. He was reacting to a whole lot of phonies. We're talking thousands and thousands of videos of, again, either just pure charlatans who are out for fame or money or, or just mentally ill people who sought to make a name for themselves by promoting nonsense on the Chinese equivalents of YouTube. There are several of these. And these people, you know, removing individuals from afar without touching them in, in ridiculous ways, without that having any magic. Yeah, magical yeah, powers exactly yeah. and there was there were also reality shows where they faked all sorts of skills yep. and the, the Chen village people some of them some of the younger generation were involved in reality shows where they had quote unquote you know sparring matches without strikes it was all wrestling but but essentially to the best of my knowledge most if not all of it was staged to some degree and so somebody like Su Xiaodong was fed up with that. And a lot of Chinese people were fed up with that. So that that's the background to how, you know, MMA and BJJ got to be so popular in China. And a lot of a lot of MMA and BJJ gyms have opened in major cities, especially in Tianjin, Beijing, and Shanghai. 
probably in many other places as well. I'm just not familiar with it. And it's a big phenomenon in China right now. And also in the West, we suffered from it because, you know, these videos were, the Xu Xiaodong videos were eventually circulated everywhere by the mass media, even in Israel. Suddenly, in, you know, some months later, maybe six months, 12 months later, I would see the, uh, the news media here in Israel suddenly featuring those Xu Xiaodong videos and like, oh, look at the Tai Chi being beat up. Ha ha, Tai Chi is worthless. Some random news anchor who doesn't know what, what the fuck they're saying, you know? Um, so that gave a bad name to Chinese martial arts everywhere. And I think a lot of Chinese martial arts teachers who don't know about this whole thing that went on that I was just talking about do not realize that this affected their school and this affected their business. We, we have some interesting parallels like that, even locally. You know, here in the United States, especially in Colorado, Colorado's kind of weird. I'm going to say this on the high end, Jonathan. I would say that there's maybe on a good day, 30, maybe 30 Chinese martial arts schools across all of Colorado. And we have great BJJ anywhere you turn here. You've mm-hmm. got great Western boxing. Um, there's a lot of competitors in the MMA world. One, because Colorado is such a high altitude. And so they use that in their fights. They will train at altitude. And that's part of it is the cardio and the conditioning, things like that. But what also happens is, like you're saying, people will watch stuff on TV. Now, that's not going to affect Owen and I. Like, we'll watch Xu Dong do these fights. That's not going to stop me from doing Wing Chun. It's not going to stop me from doing Xingyi. I have a pretty knowledgeable and pragmatic use of these systems, but I also understand that, yes, I can defend myself, but can I defend myself with everything? No. I cross-train with people. I cross-train with people in Filipino martial arts, uh, Indonesian knife fighting, all different kinds of things to get different viewpoints. But I think with what you're saying is that might keep someone in a younger generation some 12-year-old, some 15-year-old that was thinking maybe about going to um, maybe a Shaolin school down the street, but instead they see the Xu Shaodong fight and they're like, okay, I know a boxing school that's even better. I'm just going to go to that. Why would I Why would I waste my time with Chinese martial arts, especially since it's going to take me forever to get anywhere, to be anywhere and, comp- you know, for competency. I mean... I don't know. I don't know. Just some, just some food for thought. I have two comments on this, which, which I think are important. First of all, look at how in BJJ and Muay Thai and MMA, they are not afraid of insurance trouble and of legal trouble. Now that is to their detriment because I know that it, I know for a fact that in most BJJ schools, there is an over 90% injury rate. And I'm talking not a black eye. I'm talking serious injuries, mm-hmm. injuries in some BJJ and MMA schools. It's a hundred percent injury rate. And that is excessive. That is very excessive. However, they are on the other end of the scale from us, Chinese martial arts teachers. A lot of us are so dead afraid of legal trouble that we don't push ourselves and our students in practice to do more dangerous things 
And so that is less attractive to the younger generation because young people want action. They, right. Especially the men, they want action. They want it to be realistic. Now, do you have to choke somebody else out in training? Personally, I don't think so. You, you, you should bring them close. And the only reason that yeah, I would not choke somebody unconscious um, and, do, and do so of my own volition, you know, accidents happen is simply because when you choke somebody unconscious, the cumulative brain damage is there always from the fair. It's like a knockout. Every time you're knocked out, there's mm-hmm. cumulative brain damage. And every time you're fully choked out, there's yes. cumulative brain damage. And in terms of realism, you get choked out, you're out. You're out anyway. So I don't think that's necessary, but getting them close to it, yeah. yeah I get my students close. I, I routinely show my students how to break a neck, and they very slowly bring one another close to it so they understand, you know, how, how, to, how to break other limbs, how to choke somebody, um, how to dislocate a windpipe, is something that Chinese martial arts people seldom demonstrate nowadays. Uh, how to dislocate a shoulder, etc. You can get quite close. People should be able to feel it. Uh, a lot of teachers are afraid of showing things like that nowadays. Younger people desire to get close to the fire because they are firing. And that makes a lot of sense. And I think... It's partly because the BJJ and MMA gyms and the Muay Thai gyms get people a realistic sort of action. Not necessarily realistic in the sense that it's going to be like that on the street, but realistic in the in the sense of it's very close to injury. That piques the interest of a lot of young people. And the other facet is um, Randall talked earlier about community, right? And mm-hmm. I think in BJJ there is a strong sense of male camaraderie where they like they they put their fingers like that right the fingers hey we're all cool we're all this we're all wearing this gear yeah buy this gear like it's not traditional chinese shirts from 200 years ago no no that's like his gear and we're all wearing brands on our on our gear like like we're nascars right mm-hmm. <laughs> right which I, which I personally find ridiculous but you know to each his own but um, it's brands, you know, so they can wear brands like a woman wears brands, but it's manly. So they can do that. That's attractive. So there's this whole gear thing that like the fact that it's basically the equivalent of shoes or jewelry for men, this whole buying the gear, whether it's gear or no gear, you have your, your gear and the things you buy and even, even the, the camaraderie about, you know, Oh, I got this jock itch. You also got that jock itch. What do you do for the jock itch? It's like a manly thing. Like women talk about their period. Or, you know, I got this neck injury. I got this back injury. I got this knee injury. We're all injured together. (laughs) Who do you go to see your injury? Where I I go to see Jonathan. Listen, excellent. That's excellent for my Chinese medicine practice. I mean, y'all go to practice BJJ. I might not get you as students, but I'm certainly getting you as patients. So, <laughs> right. so win-win for me, win-win for me. but, but I'm saying there's this whole thing, essentially, BJJ, almost everywhere, it's in some of the MMA gyms too, but mostly BJJ, 
is a men's club, is a chain of men's clubs. That's what it is. Now, if you're not, and men's clubs have been around in every generation. And, you know, the Freemasons, aside from being a religion, and, and I don't make this up, they call themselves Masonic religion. It, it, it's the name, right? Freemasonry, for the most part, is a man's club. People go to Freemasonry because it's a man's club, right? And likewise, BJJ is a man's club. It's a chain of men's clubs. Like people, women go to the saloon, do their nails. That's a women's club. And men, they used to have the study. But now they have BJJ. And, you know, it goes back to Greek times, right? They would box, they would wrestle, and then they would massage each other. By the way, it's, it's an excellent idea. We, we are so afraid of sexuality that one man cannot massage another man nowadays. And I got to tell you, I, I mean, first time I ever started getting massages, which were not by my female partners, either men or women, when, was when I started my Chinese medicine studies. Because the man, I, I really, I, I'm telling you, I felt uncomfortable getting or giving massages, which is ridiculous. But that's the type of culture and environment that I grew up in as a man. And, you know, actually, if the BGJ people, if you're listening in on this, bring in massage at the end of the BJJ classes, you'd have double the students. It's massage, it's massage, but it's not gay. So everybody, like you, you gotta get double the students, right? Um, I have nothing against like some of some of my best friends are gay. <laughs> and so it's not a statement against gay people, of course. And massage is not straight or gay, but and I and I do massage. I do Twena Chinese medical massage. I do it regularly for a living. So anyway, the BJJ being a men's club is something that we've forgotten about in traditional Chinese martial arts. Often we're too busy with the politics and we forget about the society, the culture, the community, right? So this is something I've been writing a lot about in one of my books, uh, The Martial Arts Teacher, and then the second edition, The Martial Arts Teacher too. The Martial Arts School is a community. Now, unfortunately, a community is not something, you know, some, sometimes it happens organically and, and you'd be lucky for that to happen to you. But if you want a community, you have to encourage it. And I think one of the best martial arts books that I ever read is a short book called Success is Waiting. Success is Waiting by Buzz Durkinson say. And I, I actually know two of the most successful martial arts teachers that who have ever lived in the West, at least. So one is um, Grandmaster Keith Kelnspecht from Germany. He's actually from Europe because he, he travels and lives all over Europe. Uh, his organization, uh, at its peak, uh, would have 60,000 students. And that's a Wing Chun organization. But aside from um, my, my friend Keith, there's another fellow, this guy who wrote this book, Success is Waiting, uh, Buzz Durkinson, say, he's, he's up there in Ver- Vermont, is it? Or New Hampshire? I think, yeah, he's in New Hampshire, I think. And he lives in a town with just, I think, just under 5,000 people. And in that town of just under 5,000 people, half those people are members of his dojo. And that is insane. And that is insane. I think, actually, he is the most successful martial arts teacher who has ever lived in the West. 
it's impossible to do. Like you got the grandpas and the grandmas with their children and grandchildren in his dojo. Huh, that's great. That? That's and, great. And, yeah, right? and though, if you read his book, Success is Waiting, you know how he did it. Because he is just a lovely human being. He's personable. Mm-hmm. He's kind. He's wonderful. He really cares about people. Whenever somebody has a birthday, he would write them a birthday note. Like every every day, because he has so many students, every day he has the list of birthdays. And he would sit in his office and write personal birthday notes for every single person that has a birthday and write something nice to them, put it in an envelope and mail it to them in advance to arrive on their birthday. Who does that in martial arts? And that's why... That's why it has so many students. And I, I took it to heart, by the way. Like, we have a WhatsApp group. I've been doing this for years. Every time a student has a birthday, and uh, thank Evil Zuckerberg for Facebook so I can know when people's birthdays are. And so <laughs> I said, so every time I see a student's birthday on Facebook, I check every day. Um, then I would record a message. Sometimes it'd be maybe 30 seconds. At times, I would, I would go up to four or five minutes congratulating the person and just sharing my honest, good thoughts about the positive aspects regarding that person and how he has developed within our schools and community. That is so very important. That creates a sense of community. That's all ensures, hopefully, that over time, the students would take the Shifu's birthday more seriously. So it's a, it's a two-way street, right? Mm-hmm. We have to show respect. To gain respect, we gotta give trust to gain trust. So we have to do that as martial arts teachers. And I, let me reiterate that this is very important: show respect to gain respect, give trust to gain trust. People forget that. For instance, martial arts teachers they would want the students to trust them, but then they would never trust the they, they would keep all the authority to themselves. They would never trust the student to to leave him with a group of students and go on vacation for him to teach under them. Mm-hmm. Some teachers do that too much, and then the students feel abused. You know, you get the you get all the monthly fees, and we get nothing, and we teach for you all the time. That's the opposite, and some teachers do that. Other yep. teachers go the other extreme. They never allow students to, to teach under them. No, if you want to teach, open your own school. You don't. You can't teach under me. You're not good enough. Well, you have to give trust to gain trust. And you Absolutely. have to give respect to gain respect. So you have to really not just show respect to students, but you have to tell them that you respect them and preferably tell them that you respect them and do so in front of other students. So the mm-hmm. other students witness how you give respect and you give trust. So that is that is very important. For example, uh, one difficulty that I had some, some years back uh, when, when I uh, – when me and my wife moved abroad for a while and I, I left one of my groups in one of the cities under a student who's, who's rather young. He's just 21 years old. But amongst the students who were left in that city, he was in, he was the most charismatic. He wasn't the most veteran student. And he was not yet skilled enough, knowledgeable enough for me to call him a shuffle. But I still, I sort of left him in charge of the groups. I said, he's a group leader, as you called in the United States. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, unfortunately, that didn't did not work out as well as I had hoped. Some students, just as the students would come, some would not respect him enough. I mean, he would run the class, yes, 
but they did not show him enough respect. And some of the other students, he actually brought in new students, but then these students didn't stick around once I came back and he handed me back the group um, of his own volition, you know, uh, happily handed me back the group. And then these newer students didn't come to study under me for that and various other reasons. And I think much of it is my fault because I did not show him enough respect in, in front of other students. And I did not endow him with the trust in front of other students. Although they were told, of course, they were told that he is in charge of the group and this and that, but I didn't do all those things publicly enough and enough times. And then this caused a lot of problems. So this is my bad experiences being conveyed to listeners, hopefully as martial arts teachers, you do better than I, and then I, that I would remember this and do better in the future myself. We, we have all ran into brick walls as teachers, you know, things that, you know, you look back five or 10 years ago and it's like, why the hell did I do that? But I think just like our martial practice, the teaching is a practice in and of itself. And sometimes just because you're a great martial artist doesn't mean you're going to be a great teacher unless you're willing to humble yourself to learn along the way, just like you're learning along the way as a martial artist. Um, you know, if you think you've got it, the minute you learn the system, it's like, okay, now you, you teach. If you think you've got it and you're crystallized as a teacher, well, anything that's crystalline breaks, you know, so if you are set in stone and you're set in your ways and you're not willing to learn and adapt, uh, you might not have many students or any on the road as a teacher, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You can be a great teacher in some respects and a terrible teacher in others. Um, I can tell you with all honesty that I have always technically been a good teacher, technically meaning that if I had to instruct on a movement or a technique or make a person understand what it is that they're doing. I've always been great at that, but certainly not nearly as good in the human relations department. Actually, I sucked at it in the beginning. Um, Mostly that is my own fault, but also as I did not really have my own teachers instruct me on how to do such things, Mm -hmm. uh, partially because they, they had a much smaller group they had much smaller groups of students and the students were very like-minded in certain respects so mm-hmm. there weren't any challenges pertaining to human relations to resolve with very few people and all being quite like-minded and all into the thing that they're already doing so you didn't actually have to manage a community so nobody ever taught me how to be a, a community communal leader I was taught how to teach the physical art well. Neither was I ever taught about how to convey the spiritual aspects of what we do, which has been a separate journey for me and certainly the study of Chinese philosophy and of traditional Chinese medicine has helped tremendously with that. But in this in part, you know, for example, um, my, my dear teacher, Shifu uh, Nitsan, is my Sinitran uh, teacher, whom I really love and I consider his family, um, he's not that much of a spiritual person. So, you know, he doesn't believe in existence of, um, you know, human spirit or spirits. And um, he, even though he's, uh, he's a Chinese medicine doctor, he just conceives of things differently. So 
for me, uh, as someone who does believe in things as such, though I'm very spiritual, I'm not quite religious, but quite spiritual, um, to teach the arts in a way that reflects these beliefs of mine, also without coercing such beliefs on people, or just rather presenting them off my point of view, has that's been a good. challenge for the years. That's good. Wow. So that's, that's, that's been a big change. Um, coming onto the show and before we brought you on the show, you and I talked, uh, via Facebook about some things and topics that you wanted to talk about. And one of the biggest things that you were talking about, Jonathan, was how you've transitioned as a teacher. And you've talked about the social skills of teaching and the social skills of being a teacher and learning to be a communal leader. Um, if it's not too big of a switch of a gears, can I ask you, what are some of the technical things that you've changed? Because I've, yeah, I, I went back and I, I, I read the Blue Jade. I don't, I wouldn't call it a business statement, but I <laughs> was, I was super interested because, um, you have something called, and I, and, and I'm going to mispronounce this. You can help me out here. Tong Bu Dao. Tong Bu Dao. Yes. Tong Bu Dao. Uh, the way of synchronicity. Is that correct, my friend? Yes, that, that is. That is what they teach nowadays. The amalgamation uh, into a coherent curriculum of the martial arts I've studied and I'm still studying, actually, because it is very important to also uh, to always continually have teachers. Like uh, Titi Liang, if someone has read uh, his fantastic book, one of the best Steal books. Steal My Art. Yes, yeah, Steal My yeah. Art. Not still like, it's right now my art still is like, take from me, thieve from me, steal my art. Mm-hmm. Titi Liang, he he was a Taiji guy who was studying a Northern Praying Mantis in his seventies and eighties. Amazing guy. <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely, absolutely. So let's see. Let me let me see if I can remember this. Pigua, mm-hmm. Xingyi, Juklum mm-hmm. or Southern Mantis. Juklum Southern Mantis, yeah. And then. In a few years, a few years ago, you recently started Bagua. A little bit of Bagua Zhang, not a lot, a little of Bagua Zhang, and currently um, uh, heavily into a Li family system. And there are a lot of Li family systems. There are a lot of Li families teaching martial arts. Is um, a Li family that um, that has taught Southern Shaolin. The very yeah, interesting, yeah, uh, very is interesting it, type is of it, Southern Shaolin. Yeah. Is it Ligar? No, it's not Ligar. Ligar is, is literally like in Cantonese that would be a Lee family, right? Right. Lee right, family, right. family Fist is one name, but it's not the same Lee family. No. Okay. This is, I'll talk about that, that um, group of styles under Lee family that I'm studying in a moment. I'll get to it. Okay. Uh, before we get to Tongbuda, I just want to, to bring another example about okay. regarding my development, you know, as a communal leader, which I think is very important. Well, one of my pivotal moments, I remember, so a few years back, um, I, I had a student who was very inspiring for me for many years. We had, we, he was my student for seven, eight years. His name is Yechiel, Yechiel Leshman. He's a CEO of a very large company here in Israel, which I didn't know for the first year when they taught him. Um, and he started when he was 66 years old. <laughs> wow. Yeah. It's, That's it's awesome. Very, very interesting fella. And, you know, he, he was with me a long time. 
And I remember distinctly, so some years ago, before I moved abroad, uh, it, it was a spring day and it started raining and we were at the park. So there was a certain awning made from climbing vines that all of my students were running towards. It was about 100 meters from where we were uh, training. So they all ran to it. And it, was, it started just pouring rain. Now, I also sort of, um, I was jogging. I, was, I, I didn't run to it, but I was jogging casually because I'm not of those folks who, who think that you should run away from the rain. That's just a bit too much. And not to, not to show that I'm hyster- I didn't want to show the students that you should be hysterical about it. But then as I arrived at that awning made from climbing vines, I looked back. And Yechiel was there. He was just a third of the way because he was an older gentleman in his 70s. And he he couldn't jog or run like everybody else. He's a bit overweight. And so so I, I walked back to him and then walked with him. But and, and the students, they didn't see that, not consciously. But personally, I felt very bad about this incident. I felt that I was leading them on the path whilst leaving the, at the time, the person who is in that context, the weakest link behind. Mm. And I should have been walking at his pace behind him. Mm. And that is a lesson I learned, but that is an impression that I left to my students that I could not correct, in my opinion. Even though nobody commented on it, I, I don't think anybody consciously thought about this like I did, but I thought it was a bad personal example. And, and as I write in, in my book, The Martial Arts Teacher, and then The Martial Arts Teacher too, as a mar- you need to set a personal example, which is almost saintly. Now, you cannot be a saint, but at least appear saintly while you're in front of your students. That is very important. I have a, one of my dear teachers, uh, Sifu Sapir Tal, a disciple of uh, late Grandmaster Henry Pui, uh, who taught me Jokum Safimantis, and uh, that is Sifu Sapir. He stopped smoking because he said, you know, I couldn't see myself standing next to little kids who come to class and they see me smoking. You know, that's such a terrible example. Yeah. And that prompted him to stop smoking. And, and yeah. he's very good. By the way, this man, Sifu Sapir, he's very good at setting up a, a personal example. I, I got to share a story here. That's, that's, in my opinion, this story is more important than me talking about my martial arts. So at one time... Uh, there was a body of Sifu Sapir, um, uh, Avin Arbiasense, who's a grandmaster in his own right. Avin Arbiasense is a famous teacher here in Israel, and he travels and does a lot of seminars abroad. And he came and he taught this uh, Kapap seminar, Kapap is a uh, type of Krav Maga. And, and we're, myself and some of my students were attending it, as well as all of, uh, many students, not all, but from my Sifu school. And there was a guy there who's, he wasn't retarded, he wasn't autistic, but he was some, somewhat mentally challenged in some way, which I'm not sure of. He he went through a very difficult uh, car accident years back. You know, doctors didn't even think he would make it. Everything was broken in his body. And he recovered and he practiced martial arts for years and years and built himself. So he was kind of a bit strange guy, really nice guy, not a, not a stupid person at all. But he was strange in his ways. And... um. To build up that guy's confidence, 
uh, Avi Sensei was adamant, like, uh, I want somebody to come on to come on and spar with this guy after you know half the seminar or something. Now Israelis can be a bit aggressive like that. And Avi Sensei is an Israeli, and we are sometimes like this. And and I thought, yeah, it's a bit overt, you know. But the guy was excited. The the guy he wanted people to spar with, he was excited about this because he studied. He was studying, he was doing for years doing kyokushin karate, so he was doing a lot of spar. But he wasn't very skilled. You know, he's like student level, you know, the guy. Earlier, just prior to that, we did some, we did this exercise where people were standing in a big, big circle. Somebody would be inside of the circle. Obviously, say would tell somebody that they have to ram him. Now, you you standing inside of the circle, you wouldn't know whom around you is going to ram you. And right when you turned your back, some that somebody would run at you, try to ram you to the ground, then uh, apply a technique on you on the ground. It's like semi-sparring sort of situation, but the idea is you get caught by surprise. So when I was in the, in the center of the circle, nobody could take me down except for that guy who really surprised me and took me down. Huh. And when, so when we were on the ground, in a matter of like five seconds, I was uh, doing a rear naked choke on the guy. And he had such a strong fighting spirit that he wouldn't give up. So I, and, and I was choking, choking, choking and telling him, tap, please tap, tap, tap. And he wouldn't tap. That guy wouldn't tap. And, and the problem was he was so strong. Like if, if I were to let him go, he would jump me. So I also couldn't let him go. So I was choking. And just when he went like, <clears throat> I, I just had to let him go because I knew he was going to go unconscious. So I let him go. And I felt really bad with myself being a teacher that I couldn't mitigate this otherwise. I don't know if I, if I could have, if I tried it again. This was just the spirit of the moment, you know, and that guy was just not going to stop. He's going to spar me to, to the ground, you know. That's, that's what he was told to do. That's what he was doing. He's doing good on his part. It was a real fight. So later, when Avi Sensei asked people to come on and spar with the guy, and people saw what happened with me, they, they all felt uneasy. They all felt like, yeah, I don't know how this is going to turn out. And like, am I going to hurt him? They were thinking, I saw, I saw their head spinning, you know, the gears in their heads working. Or, you know, is he going to humiliate me and I'm going to look bad? Nobody volunteered. And I couldn't volunteer because I just screwed up, you know, with this guy, almost choked him out. I didn't want to do it again. I felt so bad for the guy. So, by the way, I didn't even have to participate. I wanted to participate as a teacher, but, you know, the other teachers who were invited were sitting at the side, you know, gossiping, just looking at the event. I, I liked to, to be a student also. So, Sifu Sapir, who was basically the guy who uh, orchestrated the event and invited Avi Sensei, he saw that nobody was volunteering. He volunteered. At the time, he was, he's still my Sifu, of course, but at the time I was studying under him. I'm, I know no longer, but we are very good friends and he's a great teacher of mine, still a life teacher for me. And so that was one example. So he volunteered and he starts sparring with this guy and they're sparring standing, not on the ground. Mm-hmm. And Sifu could kill him. He could kill him in three seconds, really. This is no, no match, but Sifu played with him like a kid would play with a puppy. He played with him so nice, and he let the guy roundhouse kick to to his thighs, and 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 throw, and really punch his chest hard. And he's like, "Yeah, you go try this, try this." And and Sifu would like hit him, but he would really hit him too hard, and then the guy would get his chance. 
And he made this sparring match, but the sparring match, which was, by the way, without gloves, any, any protective gear, right? And he made it look so honorable. Not mm. just in front of everybody else, but so honorable for that other guy. So through that sparring match, he made the guy look so good. Really. For everybody involved. Hmm. And, and, you know, the, the students are just cheering, you know, and they're happy that, about the whole thing. I was sitting there almost crying. I, I was I was touched because as a teacher, I could see what was going on there. Because Sifu lowered his ego all the way down to the floor and was taking hits that hurt, that hurt the guy had power just to make that guy who's not, wasn't even, he didn't even know the guy before. He just wanted that person to be happy. He made him happy for the fight. And who can do that? So I felt, you know, this is one of those moments in my life where I felt, you know, I'm, I'm really humble here. You know, he did some, my, my Sifu did something I couldn't do. No, he could do a lot of things that I can't do physically, but he did something I couldn't do with another human being in terms of his heart to heart communication with that other person from martial arts. I thought it was one of the most impressive things I've ever seen in my life, period, not just in martial arts, the way he did that. And, and it's a moment that you can't even capture on video because without the whole context, without the cultural context, without knowing that guy, this guy, you know, it's hard to understand. I thought it was incredible. So talk about growth, you know, as a communal leader, that was a growing moment. That was a growth moment for me. That's awesome. That's mm-hmm. awesome. Thank you for Very sharing cool that. Yeah. So uh, going back to uh, Randall asked about Tonguda, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, so with Tonguda, I try to basically improve on certain, I, w- I wouldn't say weaknesses, because it's not that martial arts have weaknesses. It's more, if a martial art is a complete system or, um, you know, a comprehend, not a complete, but comprehensive system, then it's not that the martial art has weaknesses, it's more so that people, you know, fighters, practitioners, teachers, we have weaknesses as people. But there are there certain areas where certain martial arts, you know, don't have a certain frame of mind that they could have had and are just choosing not to engage with. Just like a very good example that I like to use in BJJ. If BJJ had the Phoenix Eye Fist, not even for striking, just for poking, that's an enormous game changer. All of BJJ would change. I prove this to BJJ practitioners over and over and over again, especially if you know acupuncture points and especially in the center of the body. Uh, if someone leans against you, putting the Phoenix Eye Fist and you don't even have to be good at it within the space, into the spaces with um, between the ribs of anybody, nearly yeah. 100% of people... Yeah would roll over in a moment with the lightest pressure. It's very easy. Very, It's very seldom that people are not sensitive in these areas. It doesn't have to be Dimak, Dianmai, special death touch. You just have to press. Press in the right spot, and there are numerous spots on the chest cavity to press. A lot of them. And if it's an acupuncture point like liver 14, all the better. And what happens is the serratus anterior muscles that envelop the, the ribs and the spaces between them. Serratus anterior help the, the chest and the 
anterior deltoid, the, the front deltoid, and the biceps to close down the body inside and inward uh, to the front. And if you pressure the serratus anterior in that way by using the phoenix eye fist, just press against the rib spaces, especially in specific areas, but in nearly all rib spaces, that causes a spasm within the serratus anterior. And then the elbows open up sideways and back. And so that defeats most types of chokes. That defeats a person laying over you. That defeats a lot of techniques. And it, you can teach it to a 120-pound teenager girl. It's the easiest thing to do. And BJJ willingly chooses not to do this because it's too much of a game changer. It's not that they're dumb. It's just, it's, it's just as bad as um, introducing grabbing the testicles to BJJ. Of course, you know, BJJ people like to show if they're very skilled, oh, they can put you in positions where you can't really grab the testicles. Okay, that, that's legit. If you're very good, okay, maybe you can put a, a person in a position where you can't do that sometimes. Fine. But it's as bad, it's as useful, almost as useful. So likewise, we have um, things in traditional Chinese martial arts, certain specific arts that are not used. For example, um, in the core art, the art that... Um, served for the let's say the much of the theoretical basis of what I do uh, in terms of understanding the internal arts and such in Singichuan you have the problem that the art is stepping into a linear fashion. Now I really don't like the statement that Singichuan is a linear martial art because it is not because it's, you're supposed to have circles and spirals in every single movement, even movements that look straight. Yep. So that much is true, but the art is somewhat linear nonetheless in the way that it likes to work on narrow lines of application, either in, in stepping or in applying techniques. And sometimes it can get too narrow for its own good. It doesn't much emphasize the sideways nature that, for example, is um, quite typical of Wing Chun. Wing Chun has a lot of sideways emphasis. And then Wing Chun doesn't do it exactly the way that South Mantis or Pak Mei would do it. And then all of these arts don't have the circular stepping and, and the way that you can turn your back to the opponent and still get the better of him that Bagua Zhang has. But then Bagua Zhang doesn't have the straight line, the streamlines and tight spiral nature that Xingyi has or the uh, linear overbearing straight fist of Wing Chun, etc. So my initial take when, when I saw it, well, I, I didn't want to create a new martial art. It ended up being something new because I wanted to basically bond a curriculum of everything I know going from point A to B to C to Z in a coherent fashion that is um, perhaps more, it is friendlier in terms of how the curriculum is structured, friendlier for the modern Western-minded practitioner. And it turned out to be something new because after working on this for a span of five years or so, 
I've found that it no longer exactly looks like any of these other arts to the degree that I can call it any of these other arts. Mm. I also had the problem that in Southern Mantis, because it is very political, although maybe, maybe I was skilled enough to teach it, maybe not, I certainly was not certified to teach Southern Mantis. So I had a a ton of Southern Mantis in what I was doing, but I couldn't teach it as Southern Mantis. So how can I teach it without being it? I had to break down the whole thing and teach it differently. Mm-hmm. Simply has to do with me not, yeah, I, I, I wouldn't test for degrees in Southern Mantis. I mostly studied in, sometimes I would go to group classes. I mostly studied privately under my CFO because we were all, both were teachers and we had the different understanding. And so I, I didn't, like I, I attended tests up to like equivalent of like a yellow belt. I mean, like a yellow belt in Southern Mantis. Which is funny because, yeah, I I can hold my own weight in in with with any sovereign mantis practitioner. I mean, if I were was to go and demonstrate the different powers of sovereign mantis and different techniques and this and that, I don't think that I'm below any sifu's level. But I'm just not certified, so I don't have my teacher's permission. Fine, I'll call it something else. And now I wouldn't use the I wouldn't use your forms. I'll use something else. I'll, I'll make it my own. So that way we both live peacefully with it, I guess. Um, so in most of the South Mantis I ever studied is, is inside of Tongu Dao. It just doesn't look like the South Mantis that I said. I made it look different. I put, and then that was actually a huge advantage because I wasn't limited by the mindset of South Mantis. Because South Mantis really is an art in, in all lineages of Southern Mantis. It's an art with a theme. It wants to be something very specific. And I, I'm not limited by that theme. Actually, mm. I'm not limited by anything. Um, I, I, it's, it's an advantage. I think that there, there are several martial arts that have a theme about them. Um, Bagua has a very strong theme about it. Southern Mantis has it. Shingi Chuen also, um, or more so Shingi Liu Chuen, one of the predecessors of Shingi Chuen, has a very strong, rather than the theme, you could also call it the flavor. It's a very, very specific flavor to it. Mm-hmm. And over time, I think Tong Budao has gotten to, to have its own flavor, but it's not really limited. 